0: Let us now turn to Psalm 45, the title of this psalm to the chief musician set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also, and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors, The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers, shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as indicated in the title and the first verse of this psalm. It is a a song. It's a song for the sons of Korah. These were God-appointed singers to praise the Lord. It's called a song of love, and there's no doubt that it is a song of Christ. It is quoted in the New Testament uh, explicitly with reference uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a song of love of Christ and his church. It's also uh, described as a song of, of contemplation or a song of instruction, a song uh, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit and uh, through the Spirit composed by a, a skillful penman whose heart overflows uh, with the, the theme of this song. His heart overflows with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the most worthy kind of song to sing. And it's the most wonderful subject that we can sing about. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in a field that he himself speaks of as being of the very essence of the kingdom of God. It's the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fount of life. He is the light of, of men, the light of the world. In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell. He is the fullness of the invisible God. All glory is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be considering verses 2 through 5 this morning as it holds before us Christ as a gracious and conquering king. And we're going to see three things uh, in this connection, beginning with uh, his matchless beauty verse 2a the first part of verse 2 says you are fairer than the sons of men and that's expressed in the hebrew language simply by the the doubling up or the or the repetition of the word fair 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 or beautiful beautiful excelling in beauty is the one of whom the psalmist here speaks faith sees that faith sees that and faith is brought uh, to say that, to confess the beauty of the Lord. We sing, beautiful Savior, King of creation, Son of God and, and Son of Man. In fact, that, uh, kind of raises the question, perhaps. And, uh, it might be a question particularly for you men. Are you comfortable with that language about the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you comfortable with using such language of His, of His glory? Could you speak of the beauty of the Savior as something that you know from experience? I, I suggest that there's probably a lot of us that have no trouble talking about the beauty of of a, of a gun or a new set of golf clubs or a boat or a touchdown pass or a whole great variety of things that we might describe. That was beautiful. But is the language of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ something that, that resonates with you on a deeper level? Than any other kind of uh beauty of course we're we're not talking about a kind of uh, mere sentimental or mushy kind of uh of uh, emotion or worse we're not talking about a, a kind of physical or romanticized beauty we 're referring to the spiritual beauty of the lord Jesus christ we're going to read. Uh, later on in Isaiah chapter 53 that says that he has no form or comeliness that men should desire him, uh, when they see him. There is nothing in the New Testament or there's nothing in the scripture to suggest that Jesus, uh, had a striking physical beauty that, that people took note of. And that is in contrast with other instances in scripture where the physical appearance and beauty of both men and women is, is, uh, is noted. As something remarkable. That's not said of the Lord Jesus Christ. But He is the supreme revelation of the beauty of God. Think of David. Think of, think of David, the warrior king. This mighty man. You might, someone might say, well, David, he's a man's man. But you know what David's one desire was? To dwell in the house of the Lord. To behold the beauty of the Lord. To inquire in His temple. And all the attributes of God find their, their most glorious manifestation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The perfect union of all these attributes are found in him. The beauty of Christ is the glory of his deity, that he is true God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, we heard in this psalm, with reference to Jesus As we know from Hebrews chapter 1, the beauty of his divine nature also joined to a perfect human nature. And that beauty is revealed in everything that Jesus did. It's revealed in everything that he said. It's revealed in all his ways. Everything about him was a display of the ultimate beauty and glory of God. I trust that you come to church in order to see something of that beauty. I trust that that is a big part of your attraction to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your heart would be enlarged, that your spiritual sensitivities would be sharpened, that you would get a a deeper grasp of the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is incomparable to the most attractive of people. And again, we know from the word of God itself that there's nothing wrong with, with noticing, with acknowledging, with admiring human beauty. There are many instances of that. People are described that way. We're not talking about a kind of lustful attraction to beauty or a kind of envious, uh, uh, attraction or an envious observation or a kind of idolatrous Worship of human beauty, there's there's a lot of that going on in the world, too. We're not talking about that. There's nothing wrong with recognizing God's created beauty in other people. Moses is uh, described as one who is fair and uh, attractive. David himself was striking. Others are described in terms of beauty of form and appearance. There was a great glory to Solomon. And it's also true that just as outward beauty can really kind of be a thin veneer for a very unattractive character and person, so it's also true that physical beauty can be joined with real beauty of character, as was the case of Moses. Moses was the the meekest man in all the earth, and that's the most beautiful Christ-like characteristic. David was a man after God's own heart, as well as being attractive physically. And Solomon, indeed, had an outward glory, but he also was wiser than anyone else. And when we see these characteristics of, of uh, created beauty, of character in people, we see God's handiwork, but we also see a dim reflection of the ultimate glory and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text describes something of that beauty when it says grace is poured upon your lips. Grace is poured upon your lips, we read in verse 2. Now when we hear this word grace, we ought not to think of the way we so commonly use that word to describe what uh, has been defined as God's unmerited favor. That is God's loving kindness and mercy to sinners, the grace of salvation. Rather here we're looking at uh, an, an effusion, an abundance of graciousness graciousness of character that marked our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in his speech. And this indeed is a revelation of God and God's grace and glory. In the Gospel of John, we read in the first chapter that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the the next verse says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, he has revealed him. Jesus, indeed, is the revelation of God. As a true man, he was graced by a measureless uh, effusion and outpouring of the Holy Spirit's gifts. In Luke chapter 4, we read of uh, what appears to be Christ's first public uh, ministry there in Nazareth, where he went into the synagogue and uh read from the book of Isaiah, the passage which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What a beautiful prophecy that is. What gracious words were written for the old covenant saints to read about and to anticipate the coming of the Lord, who would exhibit such grace and power. And Jesus says, this day these words are fulfilled in your hearing. They were Jesus' words. All bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. The Gospels are full of these gracious words of our Savior. Such words as we hear in John chapter 7 when Jesus on the last day of the feast says, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. As the scripture says, he who believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living and water. No man spoke like this man. That's what the uh, Jews said about him after hearing such words. They were sent to arrest him and they were arrested by his words. And they could do nothing. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare. We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? And cite those gracious words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I could take you through the Gospels. We could linger in every place where such grace shines so brightly. Think of Matthew 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, Come unto me, All you who labor and are heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. You shall find rest for your souls. Isn't that an example of what the prophecy of Isaiah also uh, said about the Lord Jesus Christ, where in chapter 50 we read, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Are you weary this morning? Perhaps weary with the pressures and strains of your current life situation. Perhaps weary with battling physical problems. Weary with dealing with relational problems in your family. Weary with the battle of sin that seems to defeat you again and again and again. Weary with fears about the future. Worries with troubles that I can't even name or know this morning. Do you go to the Lord Jesus Christ in your weariness? Do you go to his words? Oh, he has the greatest skill. We don't look for doctoral degrees behind his name. The Lord God has given him the tongue of the learned, the learned beyond any human calculation. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do we feed on his words? Now, that doesn't mean that there's an instant cure for all these problems, does it? Many of these things will struggle with our life long. But are we going to the Lord Jesus with them? Do we believe that he indeed is fully skilled and equipped to speak a word in season, a timely word, a word that's exactly suited to our situation? You see, if we know him in that way, then we can understand what our text says. Grace is poured onto your lips. That's why you love him, child of God. That's why you want to become like him. That's why you want to worship Him. And if in the course of a, a worship service, your heart is stirred and you're deeply moved, perhaps by something that the minister says, trace it to its source. Recognize it's the Lord Jesus Christ feeding His sheep, ministering to us in our need, according to the riches of His grace. Christ's beauty is here joined with God's blessing. Also in verse 2, it says, Grace is is poured into your lips or upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Commentators note that it could be rendered because God has blessed you forever. God blesses this glorious king because grace is poured unto his lips or grace is poured upon his lips because God has blessed him. Both of those things are true with respect to our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is blessed with the favor of God upon him. He is his beloved son in whom he is always well pleased. And the Lord Jesus was blessed with the knowledge of his heavenly father's favor upon him. I do always those things that please the father. And he is blessed with the joy of his reward, of eternal blessing for his faithfulness. In verse 7 we read, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And again, isn't that part of your love for the Savior? As one who is supremely blessed by God and who is supremely worthy of such blessing. So you can join in the Father's admiration and love of his Son and extol him as the Blessed One. There is a matchless beauty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, we see Him in the triumphs of His grace. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O Mighty One, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. It's been observed by some commentators that this language, gird your sword upon your thigh, may have been a description of of what in the Eastern world was part of a coronation ceremony. No. Some of you may have had opportunity to observe a coronation, even in our modern day, and how there are ceremonial aspects to that. Dignified, uh, majestic uh, rituals it may involve placing a scepter in the king's hand or a crown upon his head. In this case, it may be that a sword was also part of that ceremonial uh, equipment proclaiming the king's identity and glory, not only with a crown or scepter, but with a sword, because after all, God has put the sword in the hand of uh, the powers that be. But in any case, we are given an exhilarating picture. If we know the history of David, we might think of those occasions in which David went forth against the Lord's enemies, conquering by God's power defeating the enemies of God's people. This warrior king going out in full regalia to cut down his enemies. Isn't that the picture that we're given of Christ in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19? Very graphic description of Christ there where we read, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yes, that's a, a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ going forth here to judgment. Now, what does it mean? We could combine that with another picture in in the 6th chapter of Revelation where John saw a white horse and one who sat on him, who was given a bow, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. It's a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Does it mean that someday we will see Jesus literally on a white horse waving a sword? I don't think so. The message of this picture is really far more glorious This is the imagery of a Savior King. That's what David was. He was a type of a Savior King. Not just a conquering King, but a Savior King who goes forth with power and righteousness to defend, to protect, to deliver. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. That's a liberating word for those who by nature are captives to him. It means that he rescues captives. It means that he defeats Their enemies. And we have this on display before us in the gospels. And we have it on display in such a a quiet, sometimes gentle way that we might fail to recognize it for what it is. We have it in the story of a man, of a, of of a woman who was bowed down with an infirmity for 18 years so that she couldn't uh, stand upright and the Lord Jesus comes along, and he says, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And that raised the objection of the leader of the synagogue. Others filled with indignation because he'd healed on the Sabbath. And the 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 leader of the synagogue, he's going to school uh, the, the attendants there. And he says, There are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? Now this is the Lord Jesus Christ going forth to conquer Destroying Satan's words, liberating people, showing his grace. There's so many occasions of it. What gracious words. Talitha Kumi, arise, little girl. He raised a 12 year old from the dead. Comforts this, this, uh, widow who had lost her own son. And before he can be buried, Jesus stops the whole funeral procession. He says to this young man, arise. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the story of Jesus Christ and his conquest. Over sin and the devil, oh, we could go on. We could see Christ put forth his power when multitudes were cut to the heart with conviction at Pentecost, saying, "What must we do, brethren, if they heard of the victory of Jesus Christ, who yes, was crucified in fulfilment of scripture, and he rose again, and the response was, "Repent and be baptized." Repent and receive the assurance of the washing away of your sins. And 3,000 were added to the church. What a glorious display of Christ. Oh, we could go throughout church history. We could read of the uh, reformation of the church beginning in Germany in the 1500s. We could read the history of revival. We could read of periods of times in which great numbers of people were converted. Where God raised up servants to proclaim the simple message And in his sovereignty, the Holy Spirit blessed it in such a way as to revive his church, as to bring many into the kingdom. See him in his conquest of Saul of Tarsus, who's going out, breathing threats and murder against the church. And Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Saul became a faithful minister of the gospel. We can go on and on. We hear of it, right? You read Word and Deed magazine. Come over and help. These are accounts of the ongoing work of the Savior. So love him for that. Love him for what he has done for you. Think of him in this great conflict of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but yours be done. When he accepted that cup of judgment that otherwise would have been poured out on us in God's holy wrath. And Jesus took it and he drank it and he drank it to the very bottom so that we might sit here this morning as those who have peace with God through his blood. Remember who and what you are by nature. Remember who you would be, what you would be without this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Has he not delivered your soul from death, your eyes from tears, and your feet from falling? Has he delivered you from a life of being unforgiven and unforgiving, a life of selfishness? A life of prayerlessness, a life of indifference to the things of God. The king rules in grace because of truth, humility, and righteousness. That's, that's what describes his uh, going forth here. Because of those things that, that man in his depravity would completely banish from the world. He would banish truth. He would banish humility. He would banish righteousness. But the Lord Jesus comes, Christ the King, the one who is himself the truth, the one who is meekness and righteousness, and he rides forth to to, to restore these things. And he will preserve them for his people, and he'll protect them. He'll protect them despite all the rage of hell. Psalm 72 speaks of this king when it says, He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. That's the conquest of our Lord Jesus. In conclusion, though, we also note that there is another side to that conquest. It is the defeat of his enemies. We're told there that the people shall fall under you. Your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. It's an interesting statement there. Your right hand shall teach you awesome things. You'd think that he would uh must first be taught awesome things and then show that with his right hand. But rather we are to... Uh, understand in this kind of language something to the effect that your experience will show what your power will accomplish and it is awesome fearful judgments will overtake those who do not bow to the truth fearful judgments will overtake those who do not learn of of meekness and submit to the righteousness of this king whoever falls on this stone shall be broken jesus said on whomever it falls they shall be ground to powder those also are words of the Lord Jesus. Yes, his arrows are sharp in the hearts of his enemies, sometimes sharp with conviction. In that same passage that I referred to earlier in uh, Luke chapter 13, where Jesus healed this woman who had been bowed down, it says, when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. They, they were defeated. And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. There's always that dual response to the Lord Jesus. Who can stand when he appears? That's the question that Malachi raises in Malachi 3, verse 2. Well, we know the answer to that question. Who can stand when he appears, as he's described in Revelation chapter 19, in a rather fearful way for those who would be found his enemies? Well, who can stand Well, the answer is that those who are humble at his word, those who received his revelation of truth and meekness and righteousness those who believed and trusted in his words of grace, those who see him and who have come to love him for who he truly is, those who hear, those who heed his gracious words, such as, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which was shed for you. How are those the gracious words? Jesus assuring us that in the bread and wine, we are given those sure symbols of his self-sacrifice for us, calling us to eat and drink in remembrance of him and thereby be assured of his love for us and his saving grace to us. We proclaim his death till he comes. Hear these words with gladness, brothers and sisters. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen.